together, please. The words of Nehemiah, the son of Hagaliah, boy, I had to look that one up. Now it happened as the month of Kislev in the 20th year, as I was in Susa, the citadel, the capital of Persia, that Hanani, one of my brothers, came with certain men from Judah. And I asked them concerning the Jews who had escaped, who had survived the exile, and concerning Jerusalem. And they said to me, the remnant there in the province who had survived the exile is in great trouble and shame. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates are destroyed by fire. As soon as I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days and I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. Nehemiah had lived all of his life in captivity. He had never seen Israel. He had never seen Jerusalem, but he'd heard the stories, lots of stories about this, this great place in this great country. And so when one of the brothers came who had been in that area, he said, tell me, tell me what's going on back home in the homeland. And the report they gave was overwhelmingly discouraging to him. Before the exile, Israel had its own language, had its own king, had its own army, had its own identity. Jerusalem was a holy city, a walled city held in great esteem. It housed great people and the king, and it housed the temple where the God Almighty of, of the Israelites actually dwelt. It couldn't get much better than that. But now, now the people of Judah are in great trouble and disgrace. Although they've been there 90 years since that first group came back, the gate and the walls of the holy city are just as crumbled and devastated as they are when Nebuchadnezzar leveled them all those years ago. This is what unsettled Nehemiah. What bothered him was that the people of God were living in ruins and they had accepted it. They were willing to walk around the devastation instead of being concerned enough to do something about it. And you know, sadly, <laughs> we're often stuck in the same unproductive, unfulfilling cycle. If nothing else, we need to understand that nothing is going to change in your individual life. Nothing's going to change in the life of this church. And for that matter, nothing's going to change in our community and nation until you and I get concerned about the problems. Some of us have become complacent about the way life is going and we're living in rubble and it doesn't even bother us anymore. No, no, my house is, my, came through the hurricane fine. No, 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 no. We're talking about emotional rubble, relational rubble, spiritual rubble. And we're living in it. And just like those folks in Israel and Jerusalem, we've kind of accepted it. And I think it's time for God to start doing some rebuilding. And that's the theme of this study, building for the future, as Nehemiah leads us. Are we ready to let God do some rebuilding? Are we as individuals, are we as a church, are we ready to become concerned about the problems and the challenges, even if it means listening to things we don't want to hear? Nehemiah didn't need to ask those questions. When those guys came from Jerusalem, there was no need for him to ask. He could have stayed unaware and totally uninvolved. As he tells us at the end of chapter 1, I was a cup bearer to the king. 
man, being a cupbearer was a great job. What, what was his responsibility? Well, it was to select and taste the king's wine before the king drank it to make sure it wasn't poisoned. Now you're thinking, how can this be a good job? Well, not many people are probably going to have, you know, the courage to try and get around the cupbearer. But the cupbearer, he gets to sit with the king. The cupbearer gets to live in the palace. The cupbearer has all kinds of access to, a, to good. and a th- He's got, even got political standing. It's good to be the cupbearer to the king. He didn't need to know what was happening back there in Jerusalem. He could have insulated himself, but instead he says, I need a first-hand report. What's going on? Because Nehemiah was concerned about the problem. And it was such a big problem that for the next four months, his life was consumed, four months, consumed with weeping, mourning, fasting, and praying. Now, with all due respect to those who have suffered as a result of Hurricane Irma, and and it makes me think of Kathy and Bill Dove over here. Uh, in fact, Kathy, why don't you just stand up so they can see you for real quick and then sit down again. That's Kathy Dove, okay? Now, Kathy is involved already in getting um, secondary school children that don't have family in the United States out of St. John into homes so they can finish their high school year and try to get some continuity to life. I just wanted you to see, Kathy, because you might be hearing more about that in the days ahead. But with all due respect to those who lost, uh, you know, what Nehemiah experienced would be like you and I sitting in Orlando while most of our family lived in St. Thomas. And after Hurricane Irma, all you see, all you see are pictures of devastation and people even your own family, people wandering aimlessly, hopelessly among the rubble, you too would probably weep, mourn, and pray. Interestingly, it probably doesn't occur to you to fast. Uh, But a leader or a prophet in the Old Testament, well, that was almost their immediate response. In the Old Testament, other than fasts that were designated by God, like fasting for the Day of Atonement, okay, Fasting was usually associated with mourning. It was an expression of brokenheartedness and desperation, usually over sin or some great tragedy that had occurred or some deep blessing that was needed. Ezra fasted over Jerusalem and Judah. Nehemiah continues to fast over a period of four months, expressing the depth of his concern about what had happened to his people in the homeland. In the next few weeks, we're going to be providing you with a tangible guide to fasting because fasting is going to be a part of our journey through Nehemiah. But this morning, we're going to focus on Nehemiah's prayer. So let's read the rest of Nehemiah chapter 1, picking up in verse 5. And I said, O Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love of those who love him and keep his commandments, Let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer of your servant that I now pray before you day and night for the people of Israel, your servants, confessing the sins of the people of Israel, which we have sinned against you. Even I and my father's house have sinned. We have acted very corruptly against you and have not kept the commands, the commandments, the statutes, and the rules that you commanded your servant Moses." 
Remember the word that you commanded your servant Moses, saying, if you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the peoples. But if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, though, though your outcasts are in the uttermost parts of heaven, from there I will gather them and bring them to the place that I have chosen to make my name dwell there. They are your servants and your people whom you have redeemed by your great power and by your strong hand. Oh, Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servants who delight to fear your name and give success to your servant today and grant him mercy in the sight of this man. Now I was a cupbearer to the king. If you were paying attention, you would probably notice that not once in that prayer does Nehemiah pray about the walls. The walls are not mentioned one time. And that shouldn't surprise you. Let's go back to our illustration of our family in St. Thomas. Your prayer is going to be a whole lot more about restoring your family than it is about rebuilding a building. Eventually, at some point, rebuilding a building might be part of restoring the family, but your first prayer is not about two-by-fours and shingles. It's about rebuilding the family. So as we continue in our study over the next weeks... We're going to discover that Nehemiah, like Ezra before him, knows that obedience to God is the most crucial thing. And both of those men worked very hard to get the people to stay on track in their worship and their day-to-day -day obedience to God because it's so easy to get distracted. Rebuilding the people around a true worship of God is probably really the ultimate goal of Ezra and Nehemiah. <laughs> the temple for Ezra, the wall for Nehemiah, they were just kind of the means that God was going to use to rebuild his people. The reality is that rebuilding a nation is a lot more difficult than rebuilding a wall. Just like in the aftermath of hurricanes, Harvey and Irma, rebuilding hope in people is much more difficult than rebuilding houses. So let's break the prayer into Nehemiah's prayer into four very specific elements, and here they are. Addressing God's character, he starts with that. Confession of sin, awareness of God's words, and finally, a request. So let's go back to Nehemiah 1, 5 to 6, and there it is. Addressing God's character. Nehemiah intentionally calls upon Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love. Very intentional wording. Nehemiah is probably really familiar with the heritage of that specific address. It's the one that is in the writings of Moses. Moses had addressed God that way in Deuteronomy. It was in the prayer of Solomon when Solomon dedicated the great temple that he had built for the Lord in 2 Chronicles. Daniel, who we found was in the Persian captivity, or the Babylonian captivity, when Daniel pleaded to God, please end Israel's captivity, he did so using this title. Nehemiah longed to see God fulfill one of his promises and reminded him that I know, God, that you are a God who keeps your promises. It's your character to do so. I have great conviction that this is true and faithful. Nehemiah's prayer is a good example of addressing God in a way that's consistent with the particular attribute of God associated with our prayer. For example, is it consistent to pray to God as Lord 
and then give him a list of things you need. If he's the Lord, okay? We would probably at those times address him as father or the giver of all good gifts. If we're dealing with a spiritual warfare issue, a title such as Lord of Hosts, Almighty One, well, that would be appropriate. And in a time of grief, we might address the Lord as the God of all comfort, the God of hope, the one who has promised never to leave us. Taking our cue from Nehemiah and the Israelites, we might want to just increase our sensitivity to the many characteristics of God and not speak his name lightly, but intentionally. When you come tomorrow night, Monday, for the evening of prayer at 7 p.m., you're going to hear the name of God expressed in a whole bunch of different ways. You're going to walk into a room and you're going to see circles of eight. Circles of eight chairs. We're going to sit down and we're going to just pray. We're going to be led. But you know, you're going to hear it, Lord God of heaven, awesome and mighty God. You're going to hear that. And you're going to hear about the Lord of hosts because we need to address spiritual warfare issues. You're going to hear about the God of all comfort as we pray for those who are in desperate need of his hope. Nehemiah 1, 6 to 7. First, he addresses God's character. And then there's a confession of sin. Because of his conviction about God's character, Nehemiah knew that God was not only able, but he was perfectly willing to respond to this prayer. But he also knew, as he was lifting that up to God, that he didn't deserve for God to do anything for him. He didn't deserve to have God treat him favorably at all. In fact, as he's holding up this great petition to God, he realizes, wait, I need to confess my sin. And that's why the next phrase of this prayer is a confession of sin. Like Job, when Nehemiah encounters an awesome God, it brings him to a place of repentance and confession. Job writes in Job 42, 5 to 6, My ears have heard of you, but now my eyes have seen you. Therefore, I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. What is the essence of the confession that Nehemiah makes here in these two verses? It's really easy. It's not God's fault. It's not God's fault. Oh, God, I, you're an awesome God, and we ended up where we belonged. We rebelled. You said you would take us away. You took us away. But you also said that when we turned back, you would bring us home. It's not your fault. Because of his conviction about God's, I mean, uh, he, uh, Nehemiah made, made no attempt to excuse the Israelites of their sin or himself. In fact, he says, I need to own my part. He looks at the grim record of of the nation of Israel from Judges through 2 Kings, and he, he goes, wow, we, we just blew you off so many times. You know, and he owns it himself. He says, I confess the sins we Israelites, including myself. You know, it would have been really easy for Nehemiah to blame them. My ancestors, what a bunch of weenies. If they had just behaved and done what was right, we wouldn't be here. I can't believe what my parents did. But Nehemiah doesn't do that. It would have been really easy for him to look back and blame them, but instead he looks 
within and blames himself. And isn't it easy for us to blame other people? We do that all the time, don't we? Nehemiah is an example to us that says, it's not God's fault, and a lot of times it's not even their fault. Sometimes you just need to own it. So Nehemiah confesses honestly. He says, Lord, I'm wrong. I, Lord, I want to be part of the answer, but I confess that I'm part of the problem. And that's an important place for him to be in what he's going to ask of God later. Nehemiah recognized that this sin was so bad, it's even termed as very wickedly. We, were, we acted very wickedly. It wasn't just the things we did or didn't do. We we're just a stubborn, rebellious people. He doesn't candy coat it, sugar coat it at all. He calls it like it is. So he comes to God and acknowledges and, and addresses him for the characteristic of promise-keeping. As he does that, he recognizes his own need to confess sin, not only for his nation, but for himself, because it's not God's fault. And then the next, he is aware of God's words. He's going to quote God back to himself. Uh, Nehemiah asks God to remember, as if God has trouble remembering what he said. What's more important and more to the point is that Nehemiah remembered what God had said. Nehemiah was committed to the words of God and he knows the promises that can be claimed and he expresses confidence that God will fulfill them. And here was the promise that you find in these verses 8 through 9. It was a twofold promise. The first one comes out of Leviticus 26, 33. If you disobey, off to a foreign land you go. That part had been fulfilled. The second part of the promise was out of Deuteronomy 30, verse 4, was that the captivity, when the captivity was over, when the 70 years were over, God would send them back to Jerusalem. And they were still waiting for that to be completely fulfilled. And Nehemiah prayed, Lord, the first part is true. We disobeyed and here we are. But Lord, you made a promise to bring us back home and protect us. And that's not fully done yet. I'm claiming your promise. The fundamental part of the prayer was Nehemiah's understanding of the revealed character of God, the instructions God had given, and the promises he had made, which for us are all found in the book. Nehemiah had an incredibly powerful interaction with God because he knew about God's character, he knew what God had instructed, and he knew what God had promised. And so he could come before the God of, who is a promise keeper and say, remember that promise? Be the faithful God you are. Okay, uh, excuse me. Uh, his understanding of God's word. And you could tell what's on his heart by the way he prays uh, and what he prays for. Last, last set of verses, 10 to 11. Finally, finally, Nehemiah makes a request. Do you see the progression in Nehemiah's prayer? His concern about the problem, which he could have easily ignored. His concern to the depth of brokenness. His conviction about God's character. I know who you are, God. Oh, and I know who I am too. And so let's make sure I get in the right perspective through confession. 
He doesn't stay there groveling. He then says, but I can pray boldly to the God who has rescued us. I can pray with confidence. And Lord, I'm actually committed to this process. Here's my part. Nehemiah, Nehemiah makes one simple request. And here he says, the task is too big. I have no resources whatsoever to contribute. In fact, the best thing I can come up with is a crazy plan that'll probably cost me my job and maybe my life. But if I can be used to help fulfill your promise, here I am. Please show me favor with the king. Nehemiah prays 11 different times throughout the book of Nehemiah. Never once does he mention the wall. The wall, it seems, was merely the project that God gave Nehemiah to help bring the people back together. Nehemiah didn't pray about the project. He prayed about the longing in his heart that was in harmony with the, heart, with the longing in God's heart. And in the New Testament, they pray just the same way. They go beyond the project and the event at hand to the heart of the issue. Okay. Let's make an application of Nehemiah's prayer. Are you concerned about your problems? Or are you living in denial? Okay, some things are more I'm concerned about, you know, something tangible that needs to be done. Okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, I'm concerned about cutting my grass and trimming my trees. But I'm not always concerned about addressing my internal issues, which God cares about a whole lot more than my grass and trees. You're, you're in the same boat, okay? Are you concerned? First thing Nehemiah needed to do was be concerned, or do you just try to avoid the whole question? I just won't think about that. I'll think happy thoughts about Jesus. Are you concerned about your problems? Let's take it a, a step further. Are you concerned about the challenges before Avalon Church? And you go, what, what challenges? Okay. If you have this often little red document in your hand, okay, I would invite you to take the side that might be blank, <laughs> but there's some really tiny print way down here in the bottom in the yellow. Let's read this together. Year-to-date general fund giving, $578,201. Budget-to-date, what we expected to have spent or needed to spend by this point, $713,276. Okay, some high schooler do the math for me. Yeah, that's $130,000 behind budget in the middle of September. I sat with the elders last Saturday and we looked at projections based on what could be reduced and cut uh, in our spending. And it's not very much if you want the lights to be on and the mission giving to continue. Um, we could stop all ministries effective right now, but that's not what God wants at all. Um, the projection says that come the end of December, if nothing changes, will be $200,000 behind budget. Oh, not just, oh, that's a nice number budget, but oh my goodness, there are bills to pay budget. 
you know how the elders responded to that? They went, wow. We really need to start praying because there's a wall that needs to be built. And if you drove in, you saw the really pretty blue tarp on our roof. Okay, Thank the Lord we still have a roof. But the, the, the roof has to be totally redone. Uh, deductibles for insurance are tens of thousands of dollars. Okay, folks, I want to make you aware of the problem. We got a problem. Did the elders panic and go, ah, no, they went, whoa, we need to pray. And we need to pray like Nehemiah prayed. I hope you're concerned about the challenges before your church. Do you have a conviction about God's holy character? Do you really believe he's a great and awesome God? Not just that saves, which is more than we ever asked, more than we ever deserved through Jesus Christ, but a great and awesome God that rescues and rebuilds and restores what the locusts have eaten. Do you, do I have a conviction about God's holy character? Enough that you would see it in the way I pray. Are you ready to confess your sins? Am I ready? Are we ready to confess our sins? I hope that's part of the process when we think about the problem and the mag- and the bigness of our God who we're going to appeal to. Uh, we, need to we need to get this perspective really right. We might, when you come tomorrow night and sit in your circles, part of what may happen is a confession of sin, which would be incredible. Every revival that has ever occurred in the United States, any great spiritual revival always starts with fasting and confession of sin. Fasting and repentance. Which is why at some point along the way, we'll fast. But you can always start confessing right now. Do you have a confidence in God's promises? Pastor Art read a great scripture out of 1 Peter this morning during our our prayer time before the worship team. It's out of 1 Peter 3. Because you're going... Jim, that's a bunch of Old Testament stuff. No, no, no. 1 Peter 3, 12. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are open to their prayer. Do we believe that? As much as Nehemiah believed that. And finally, are you ready to make a commitment to get involved in God's kingdom work? Okay. Here's a few ideas you could implement. Let's call them wall-building commitments. You could commit to be an active member of a life group. Well, how do I do that? Well, you can always just write life groups at avalonchurch.org. You can always take Ira, who's out there at the, you know, in that area every Sunday morning. Or two weeks from today, you could come to church Because after church, first Sunday family worship, that's going to be fun. But after church, we're going to have a barbecue and a life group fair. It's going to be your opportunity to get fed and then to wander around and meet those people who either lead, facilitate, or are part of the many life groups we have. Commit to be an active member of a life group. Because most of you in this room are not. Commit to be a person or a family that consistently and regularly gives 
to the Lord's work. Because most of you in this room don't. Consistently, regularly. Well, I give occasionally some. Okay. Now see, you're going, oh, Jim, you're getting all legalistic on me here. No, I, I want you to understand anything on this list, we're going to finish the list, but anything that I put on the list has nothing to do with your salvation. Nothing at all. You don't get saved by becoming a member of a life group. You don't lose your salvation because you don't regularly and consistently give. Salvation is found by grace through faith alone in Jesus Christ. Right? The Jews were still Jews in Jerusalem. Just because they wouldn't rebuild the wall didn't make them not Jews anymore. Commit to, be, to, commit to God honoring prayer. And that's just kind of been the whole message today. You know, there's a whole lot of ways to pray. There's a whole lot of titles of God's character attributes. But at least Nehemiah said, there's a problem. You're big enough to take care of it. It's, it's not your fault. It's mine. Now, I'm available. That's God-honoring prayer. That's good stuff. Well, how do you commit to God-honoring prayer? Well, when you're here tomorrow night at 7, you'll get an opportunity. We had the most incredible prayer time the Saturday before Irma. It was on the, on the fly, you know, come at 9. We had 55, 60 people here. Man, it was awesome. And like I wrote my email this week, imagine what it would be like if we had 100 people here or hundreds of people here. God-honoring prayer. Commit to a ministry or an area of service that will grow you. Come at 3 o'clock today. Learn more about missions. Help feed the homeless. Be involved in children's ministry. Commit to a ministry or an area of service that will grow you because most of us in this room have not. And finally, commit to being available to be used of God and then tell him you are, just like Nehemiah did. Okay, this has nothing to do with your salvation. Well, then what's it about? It's about Jews that were still Jews that were living in rubble, unproductive and unfulfilled. It's about Christians who have a relationship with Jesus Christ and are saved, but we are living unproductive and unfulfilled lives. It's time to rebuild. When we have the courage to admit that we've messed up, and we have, we've, when we've messed up, when we become concerned enough about the way we've been living that we confess our sins, we know, we know that God will do his rebuilding work because he has promised to. I am aware, as the acting senior pastor, I am aware that some of you are idling, waiting to see who the new senior pastor will be. You're idling. Well, I'm not going to just really quit. I'll keep coming, but I'm not sure I want to get involved and invested yet till I see who the new senior pastor is going to be. Folks, the pastor is not the church. You are. We are. 
And Jesus obviously is not waiting to do things in Avalon Church until the new pastor's identified. Jesus continues to lead. And faithful men like Pastor Arthur, Pastor William, and the elders are praying and listening and following. And we need to go build some walls and some gates. One last thought. Isn't it cool how the gospel of Jesus Christ shows up in Nehemiah 1? God, you are great and awesome, and you keep your promises. I've sinned, but your promise of salvation is fulfilled in the blood of Jesus Christ. I'm placing my faith in you, after which you invite me to come boldly, like Nehemiah, come boldly to the throne of grace for grace and mercy in my time of need. And now I'm available to be used of you in ways I never, ever thought possible. And that's the gospel. Let's pray. Father God, we in many ways are not much different as a people than those Jewish exiles returned to Jerusalem. They remember what was. They felt overwhelmed about what is. And they weren't sure they knew what would be. But I thank you, God, for Nehemiah, who knew you to be the great and awesome God who keeps his promises he put himself in the absolute right posture to come boldly to the throne. And then he said, here am I. Use me. Move that in our hearts through your spirit this morning. And Lord, if there are some who have not, as we prayed even during praise team practice, Lord, if there is someone, some ones in the room who have not stepped into a relationship with Jesus Christ and accept the grace gift of salvation through faith, Lord, lead them home. Lead them home to the front even this morning as the praise team plays. Let's stand together, please.